Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from French and English. Written by Philbert Gilbert Hamerton and published in 1889. This book provides a comparison between the French and English during the second half of the 19th century. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important. And my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Firstly, a huge thank you to new patrons, Rita, AF and Leonardo De Simone for becoming supporters on Patreon. Your financial contribution to the podcast is an amazing compliment and truly appreciated. Thank you to Marek for your kind message through the website. I'm glad that you find the podcast incredibly mentally boring. Terry L. McClelland Thank you for your kind review on Audible. I'm glad the podcast is working well for you. As always, thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors and everyone who took the time to send a message or leave a review during the week. If you appreciate the podcast, please leave a review in your podcast app Even one sentence really helps out. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. If you would like, you can always say hello to me there as well. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. French and English, a comparison by Philip Gilbert Hamerton. In the years 1886 and 1887, the author contributed a series of seven articles to the Atlantic Monthly, which bore the title of the present volume and are in great part absorbed in it. The book, however, is essentially new, as it contains much more matter than the articles, and the chapters are either hitherto unpublished or rewritten in a less desultory order. This work is not intended to be historical. It only professes to compare the French and English of the second half of the 19th century. Preface 
It may be taken as typical of the author's intentions that he has felt uncertain which of the two nationalities he would put first in the title and that the question has been decided by a mere consideration of euphony. If the reader cares to try the experiment of saying English and French, and French and English afterwards, he will find that the latter glides the more glibly from the tongue. There is a tonic accent at the beginning of the word English, and a dying away at the end of it, which are very convenient in the last word of a title. French, on the other hand, comes to a dead stop, in a manner too abrupt to be agreeable. The supercilious critic will say that I am making overmuch of a small matter, but he may allow me to explain why I put the Frenchman first, lest I be accused of a lack of patriotism. This book has not, however, been written from a patriotic point of view. It is not simply an exposition of the follies and sins of another nation for the comparative glorification of my own. Neither is it an example of what the Herbert Spencer has aptly called anti-patriotism which is the systematic setting down of one's own countrymen by a comparison with the superior qualities of the foreigner. I should like to write with complete impartiality, if it were possible. I have at least written with the most sincere desire to be impartial, and that perhaps at the cost of some popularity in England, for certain English critics have told me that impartiality is not patriotic, and others have informed me of what I did not know before, namely that I prefer the French to my own countrymen. It seems to me that the best patriotism does not consist in speaking evil of another country, but in endeavouring to serve one's own. There are many kinds of service. That of a writer is above all things to tell the truth, and not to deceive his countrymen, even when they wish to be deceived. If he fails in veracity, He is guilty of a kind of treachery to his own country by giving it erroneous ideas or fallacious information. Such treachery may become serious when the subject of the volume is international. When public writers are patriotic in the old narrow and perverse meaning of the term, That is to say, when they are full of gall and injustice, when they systematically treat the foreigner as a being who has neither rights nor merits, nor feelings then, whether intentionally or not, 
They are urging their own nation on the path that leads to war. When they endeavour to write truly and justly about the foreigner, with a due consideration for his different position, and a fair recognition of his rights and feelings, then they are favouring the growth of a conciliatory temper which, when a difficulty arises, will tend to mutual concession and to the preservation of peace. Is it better or worse for England that she should maintain peaceful relations with her nearest neighbour, with the nation which, along with herself, has done most for liberty and light. That question may be answered by the experience of seventy years. I have no illusions about friendship between nations. There will never be any firm friendship between England and France, and a momentary attachment would only cause me anxiety on account of the inevitable reaction. All I hope for and all that seems to me really desirable is simply mutual consideration. That is possible. That is attainable in the higher minds of both countries, with a few exceptions, it exists already. If it existed generally in the people, it would be enough to prevent bloodshed. Any difficulty that arose between the two countries would be met in a rational temper, and probably overcome without leaving rancor behind it. This has actually been done on one or two recent occasions with complete success. A result due to the high patriotism of the statesmen on both sides. A lower and more vulgar patriotism would have aroused the passion of chauvinism which puts an end to all justice and reason. Whatever the spirit of justice may lead to in the correspondence of statesmen, it is a sad hindrance to effect in literature. I am fully aware of this and know that, without justice, a more dashing and brilliant book might easily have been written. Just writing does not amuse but malevolence may be made extremely entertaining. What is less obvious is that justice often puts her veto on those fine effects of simulated indignation, which the literary advocate knows to be of such great professional utility. It is a fine thing to have an opportunity for condemning a whole nation in one terribly comprehensive sentence. The literary moralist puts on his most dignified manner when he can deplore the wickedness of thirty millions of human beings. It is ennobling to feel yourself better 
and greater than 30 millions and the reader. The reader too has a fine sense of superiority in being encouraged to look down upon such a multitude. Justice comes in and says, but there are exceptions and they ought not to be passed over. That may be, replies the genius of brilliant literature, but if I stop to consider these, I shall lose all breadth of effect. Lights will creep into my black shadows, and I shall no longer appall with gloom. I want the most telling oppositions. The interests of art take precedence over commonplace veracity. The foreigner may be effectually dealt within one of two ways. He may be made to appear either ridiculous or wicked. The satire may be humorous, or it may be bitter and severe. The French, with their lighter temperament, take pleasure in making the Englishman absurd. The English, on their part, though by no means refusing themselves the satisfaction of laughing at their neighbours, are not disinclined to assume a loftier tone. It is not so much what is obviously ridiculous in French people that repels as that, which cannot be described without a graver reprobation. And yet, delightful as may be the pleasures of malice and uncharitableness, they must always be alloyed by the secret misgiving that the foreigner may possibly, in reality, not be quite so faulty as we describe him and as we wish him to be. But the pleasure of knowing the truth for its own sake, when there is no malice, is a satisfaction without any other alloy than the regret that men should be no better than they are. One of my objects in this book has been to show real resemblances under an appearance of diversity. And not only do nations deceive themselves by names, but they seem anxious to deceive themselves and unwilling to be undeceived. For example, in the matter of government, there is the deceptive use of the words monarchy and republic. When we are told, for the sake of contrast, that England is a monarchy, and France a republic, it is impossible, of course, to deny that the statement is nominally accurate, but it conveys, and is disingenuously intended to convey, an idea of opposition that does not correspond with the reality. The truth is that both countries have essentially the same system of government, in both we find a predominant legislative chamber with a cabinet responsible to that chamber 
and existing by no other tenure than the support of a precarious majority. The chamber in both countries is elected by the people with this difference, that in France the suffrage is universal and in England very nearly universal. In short, the degree of difference that there is does not justify the use of terms which would be accurate if applied to countries so politically opposite as Russia and the United States. Again, in the matter of religion, to say that France is Catholic and England Protestant conveys a far stronger idea of difference than that which would answer to the true state of the case. In each country, we find a dominant orthodoxy, the church of the aristocracy, with its hierarchy of prelates and other dignitaries, and under the shadow of the orthodoxy, like little trees under a big one, we find minor Protestant sects that have no prelates and also tolerated unbelievers. Stated in this way, the real similarity of the two cases becomes much more apparent. The most important difference usually passed over in silence, being that co-establishment exists in France for two Protestant sects and for the Jews, whilst it does not exist in England. It is an obstacle to accurate thinking when differences are made to appear greater than they are by the use of misleading language. France and England are no doubt very different, as two entirely independent nations are sure to be, especially when there is a marked diversity of race, but the distance between them is perpetually varying. I hope to show in this volume how they approach to and recede from each other. The present tendency is strongly towards likeness, as, for example, in the adoption of the English of the closure and county councils, which are both French institutions, and it might safely be predicted that the French and English peoples will be more like each other in the future than they are now. Democracy in politics and the recognition of complete liberty of conscience, both positive and negative in religion, will be common to both countries. Even in matters of custom, there is perceptible approach, not to identity, but to a nearer degree of similarity. The chauvinist spirit in both countries recognises this unwillingly. A nobler patriotism may see in it some ground of hope for a better international understanding. 
as it is unpleasant for an author to see his opinions misrepresented. I may be permitted to say that in politics I am a pure opportunist, believing that the best government is that which is best suited to the present condition of a nation. Though another might be ideally superior, when a country is left to itself, a natural law produces the sort of government which answers for the time. I look upon all governments, whatever is merely temporary and provisional expedients, usually of an unsatisfactory character, their very imperfection being a sort of quality as it reconciles men to the inevitable change. To make a comparison far more sublime than our poorly contrived political systems deserve, they are moving like the sun with all his cortege of planets towards a goal that is utterly unknown. Or it is possible that there may be no goal whatever before us, but only unending motion. The experimental temper of our own age is preparing, almost unconsciously, for an unseen and unimaginable future. It is our vain desire to penetrate the secret of that future that makes all our experiments so interesting to us. France has been the great experimental laboratory during the last hundred years, but England is now most equally venturesome and is likely before long to become the more interesting nation of the two. I believe parliamentary government to be the only system possible and practicable in England and France at the present day. I believe this without illusion and without enthusiasm. The parliamentary system is so imperfect that it works slowly and clumsily in England, while in France it can hardly be made to work at all. With two parties, the prize of succession is offered to the most eloquent fault finder. With three, a cabinet has not vitality enough for bare existence. At the present moment, the English Parliament inspires, but little respect, and the French no respect, whatever. Still, we are parliamentarians, not for the love of long speeches in the House, but from a desire to preserve popular liberty outside of it. The distinction here between England and France is that in France, every parliamentarian is of necessity a Republican, a freely elected parliament being incompatible with monarchy in that country, whereas in England, Queen Victoria... Unlike her predecessor Charles I, has made it possible for her subjects to be parliamentarians and royalists at the same time.
in the variety of national and religious antipathies, we sometimes meet with strange anomalies. Whenever there is any conflict between French Catholics and French freethinkers, the sympathy of all but a very few people is assured to the Catholics beforehand, without any examination into the merits of the case, and the case itself is likely to be stated in England in such a manner as to command sympathy for the Catholics. This is remarkable in a country which is, on the whole, Protestant, as the very existence of the French Protestants in themselves a defenceless minority is due to the protection of the freethinkers. Without that strictly neutral protection, Protestant worship would no more be tolerated in France than it was in the city of Rome when the popes had authority there. I may also remind the English reader that if genuine Catholics were to become masters of England, all Protestant places of worship would be shut up, and the Anglican sovereign would have the alternative of Henry VIII, whilst the heaviest political and municipal disabilities would weigh upon all who did not go to confession and hear mass. On the other hand, if freethinkers such as the present generation of French politicians were masters of England, the worst evil to be apprehended would be the impartial treatment of all religions, either by co-establishment as in France or by the disestablishment, as in Ireland. The bishops would be dismissed from the House of Lords, but the bishops and clergy of all faiths would be eligible for the House of Commons, as they are for the Chamber of Deputies. It is now quite a commonly received opinion in England that religion is odiously and senselessly persecuted in France, but nothing is said against the Italian government for its treatment of monastic orders. Neither does it occur to English writers that this is a case of a moat in the neighbour's eye and a beam in one's own. The Catholic Church has been robbed and pillaged by the French secular power, which allows her nearly two million sterlings a year in compensation, and keeps the diocesan edifices in excellent repair. The Catholic Church has been robbed and pillaged by the English secular power, which repairs none of her buildings and allows her nothing a year in compensation. In France, the Jewish and dissenting clergy are paid by the persecuting state, which in England, they get nothing from the state. 
Catholic straight processions are forbidden in many of the French towns. In England, they are tolerated in none. In France, a Catholic may be the head of the state. In England, he is excluded from that position by law. The French government maintains diplomatic relations with the Holy See. A nuncio is not received at the court of St. James. The French government is described as persecuting and tyrannical because it has sent pretenders into exile after tolerating them for 16 years. The English government never tolerated pretenders at all, but kept them in exile from first to last, the last being their final extinction on foreign soil. Another very curious and unfortunate anomaly is the instinctive opposition of French Republicans to England. It exists in degrees exactly proportioned to the degree of democratic passion in the Frenchman. When he is a moderate Republican, he dislikes England moderately. A strong Republican usually hates her, and a radical Republican detests her. These feelings are quite outside of the domain of reason. England is nominally monarchical, it is true, but in reality, as every intelligent Frenchman ought to know, she has set the example of free institutions. A hypothesis that may explain such anomalies as these is that the ancient national antipathy which our fathers expressed in bloodshed has now, in each nation, taken the form of jealousy of the other's progress, so that although each enjoys freedom for herself, she can never quite approve of it in her neighbour. There is also the well-known dislike to neutrals, which in times of bitter contention intensifies itself into a hatred even stronger than the hatred of the enemy. The French freethinker is a neutral between hostile religions and the English lover of political liberty is regarded as a sort of neutral by Frenchmen. The purity of nationality in a man's ideas is only compatible with pure ignorance. An English agricultural labourer may be purely English. The gentleman's son who learned Latin and Greek becomes partly Latinized and partly Hellenized. If he learns to speak French at all well, he becomes, so far, Gallicized. To preserve the pure English quality, you must exclude everything that is not English from education. You must exclude even the natural sciences and the fine arts, as they have been built up with the aid of foreigners. 
and constantly lead to the study of foreign works. These things do not belong to a nation, but to the civilised world. And England, as Rebecca said in Ivanhoe, is not the world. Her men of science quote foreign authorities continually. Her painters and musicians are nourished from their earliest youth on continental genius. But although it is impossible for an educated man to preserve the purity of his mental nationality, that is, its exclusive and insular character, although it is impossible for him to dwell in English ideas only when foreign ideas are equally accessible to him, The fact remains that the educated mind still includes far more of what is English than the uneducated one. The man who is called half a foreigner because he knows a foreign language may be more largely English than his critic. A rich man may hold foreign securities and yet, at the same time, have larger English investments than his poorer neighbour. Even with regard to the affection, there are Englishmen who love Italy far more passionately than I have ever loved France. Yet they love England as if they had never quitted their native parish. The Saturday Review was once good enough to say that I am courteously careful not to offend. It is satisfactory to be told that one has nice literary manners, but I have never consciously studied the art of avoiding offence, and in a book like this it does not seem possible to avoid it. People are more sensitive for their nation than they are even for themselves. They resent the simplest truths, though stated quite without malice, if they appear to be in the least unfavourable. One evening, at Victor Hugo's house in Paris, a few of his friends met and the conversation turned by accident on a book of mine. Round My House, then recently published. Gambetta, who was present, was in a mood of protestation because I have said to the French peasants that they were ignorant, and Victor Hugo was inclined to take their part. The sentiment of patriotism was very ardent and sensitive in Gambetta, so he could not allow a foreigner to say anything that seemed unfavourable to France. Yet the French themselves have shown that they were aware of ignorance prevalent in their own country, and by their praiseworthy efforts to remedy it. And that concludes tonight's reading. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I also hope that you're feeling a little tired. If you're not quite ready for sleep yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast.
Until next time, good night.